Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I talk to various people about the five things from their life that they would like to put into a time capsule, four things that they cherish and would like to preserve, and one thing that they would like to bury in the ground and never have to visit again. My guest this week is the brilliant Mark Gatiss. Now, if you don't know Mark's work, then I suggest you Google him immediately and watch, well, watch everything he's done. From the brilliant League of Gentlemen, uh, Nighty Night, in which he killed me, Catterick and Game of Thrones, right through to the fabulous Sherlock. He won an Olivier Award for Three Days in the Country, and most recently he played George III in The Madness of George III. He's also a very highly acclaimed writer. He's written for things like Doctor Who, The League of Gentlemen, obviously, Sherlock, and the recent TV miniseries Dracula, amongst loads of other things. Mark kindly invited me to his house in Islington, where we sat on the sofa with a cup of tea and a dog between us, and the occasional thump from the builders outside. And eventually I asked him what five things he'd like to put into a time capsule, four that he cherished and uh, one that he would like to bury and never have to think about again. But before we did that, we chatted about all sorts of things. So you join our conversation as we're talking about Alan Bennett and his ability to, well, to know a place that he could never have visited. Anyway, I hope you enjoy it. Again, talk Bennett, so very brilliant about this. When you wrote 40 Years On, and Gielgud, who was played the headmaster, remember? And he said, that he talks about the summer of 1913, or the summer before the war, First World War, and he said, how do you know? How do you know? And, let, and it's just 
informed. He's informed yeah. by. He wasn't there, but it's like he was, you know. And yeah. I love that. The, the idea that you can get, you can actually get close without having been there, just by sort of absorbing other people's memories. In a way. Yes, yeah. it makes you feel as if you have. I'm very aware. I remember my father telling me in great detail about the feeling he had just before the war started, mm. which was one of absolute elation, because he was living this dull life in southeast London and things were going to change. They oh, were going to be brilliant. Yes, yeah. I always remember I think of that when I think of Brexit. Why people did it, you know. The change. They, they just wanted this change. And yeah, that's yeah. the exciting thing. Yeah. There's um that wonderful John Borman film, Hope and Glory. Mm, beautiful and, film. And um I remember Barry Norman reviewing it and he his dad, Leslie, who was a famous director, didn't like it at all. He said, the war wasn't like that. And Barry said, oh, it was, Dad. Because it, it's a little boy's perspective. It's about yeah. shrapnel and that wonderful bit when they come back and the school's bomb and he goes, thank you, Hitler. <laughs> you know, And everyone's perspective of it is totally different, isn't it? That? Completely. The lovely thing about doing this has been that actually I've found that I've remembered things mm. that I'd completely forgotten. I'm constantly reminded of things. I think, oh, God, yeah, no, I did something like that. Mm. And you don't ever think of them. Sometimes I think it's the kind of rush, isn't it? You, sometimes you, you, they come back to you at three o'clock in the morning, mm. those moments. You, but you realise that you've actually, you've sort of covered your tracks, not in a conscious way. Yeah. You just get on with your life. And then every now and then you, you, you do look back and think, gosh, isn't that interesting? Or in that sort of sliding doors way, if that happened, if that hadn't happened, then, oh my goodness, it can sometimes be quite... Frightening. I always cherish the idea of writing a story about someone who, some massively successful person who, it is their 60th per- birthday party, when they wake up the next morning, they're 20 again, and, and they have to try and put it all back together exactly as it happened, but it's impossible because yeah. it's such a network of tiny coincidences. It's like, well, all I have to do is meet him, and the, but then the, you go there five minutes later and you've missed them and it doesn't happen. And yeah. It's really... Remarkable though, how how and you don't miss you miss the people that you love. Yeah, you've turned up and they're talking to someone else. Yes, yes. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a classic sort of sci-fi thing, isn't it? But it's true. It's our oh, Groundhog Day, that mm. wonderful thing of not quite getting it right, you know. And um, you just don't you just don't remember those things the same way. I think you were. I think you self-edit as well. You erase your own mistakes, don't you? <laughs> I do. <laughs> yes, Groundhog Day. There's a moment in Groundhog Day, if you ever watch it again, which I noticed on about the 20th watch. Because I watch it every day. Yeah. My children, you know, <laughs> well, there was a time when my teenage children, whenever it was raining, would go, let's put Groundhog oh, Day on. Yeah. So we did watch it an enormous number of times. And then uh, there's a moment right at the end when she basically says, invites him back, come back. And it's never worked. You know, it's pointless. And he realises at that point that it's pointless. And he says, no, no, it's been a perfect day. And at that moment, his eyes just flicked to her shoulder and he looked sort of slightly quizzical. And then as she turns to go, he, he looks to the sky. And you read, I realised on about the 20th viewing that that's the moment that things change. I said things change. It snows. Oh. A snowflake lands on her shoulder and it's never landed before. Oh, right, I see. And it confuses him. He doesn't realise the significance yeah, of it, yeah, but yeah. that's what it is. Yeah. Which is... Amazingly beautiful detailed writing, isn't it? The great thing. Have you seen they've done a, he's done an advert? Um, 
No. He's done a car advert, but they've got everyone. Phil? Phil? Car? They've got Ned Ryerson back. They've no. got the mayor. They've just done it again. Um, it's it basically like, say, well, if you've got this Chevrolet, it's worth living every day. <laughs> but they've done it really beautifully. I mean, really properly. But I, I, that film, I think, is that rare thing. It's a modern classic. It was acknowledged as a modern classic almost immediately. Yeah. Do you know that people say, oh, they don't make films like they Oh, they do. And then there was something about that. I remember seeing it and just thinking, God, this is good. This is mm. it's a great idea. But look at the skill with which it's done and the heart. Yeah. It's so moving. It really is. And it, it, it bears enormous numbers of repeated views. It's, the per- mm. it's kind of perfect. It's a, it's a clever... And yet, equally, you could imagine Jimmy Stewart doing it in the 40s, couldn't you? It is. It's a wonderful Time life in another yeah. form, yeah. isn't it? Beautiful, beautiful film. There are very few films that you see like that that actually you almost immediately want to watch again, yeah. I think. Uh, for me, it was um, Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. Strangely, I was on tour and I went to see it one morning in the cinema and came out and then thought, no, I'm going back in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's that yeah same thing. There was a it's a particular thing. I I think generally movies from the eighties are, are pretty unwatchable. There's a lot of bad movies in the eighties, really are. And obviously, if you're, I was really intrigued by the popularity of Stranger Things. I was a bit old. I know what's going on, but I was a bit old to feel the way that people do. But if you're the right age, if The Goonies was your favorite movie. Then this program is like catnip. It's mm. too old. I was too old for it, but I can see how well they've done it. But it clearly taps into a massively powerful thing, yeah. and I think a huge amount of that is to do with Spielberg and those great movies of that time. Those are the films that we remember, and they are the best ones. And there was this fantastic sense. I used to think of going to see you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark or, um, or um, ET or something. You were in the hands of, of grown-ups. Mm. I used to oh, these people know what they're doing yeah there's a there's a there's a source of amazing sort of adamantine american professionalism to them it's it's and yet it's incredibly you know full of emotion and, and truth you know but these that one after another those movies just go oh my god those those are good films aren't they and that they really stand up in the way that those brilliant early 70s american movies do there's sort of like clute and mm. parallax and the conversation you just go how did they one after another, those people were on fire. Yeah. Uh, and I, I always, I love that feeling, ranging all over the place, but I love that feeling when when you think you're in safe hands. Well, to your credit, I think you've always applied that rule to your own writing. Well, don't, don't poo-poo that point. Come on now. Poo-poo. Come on. I've, I've hired someone to bang at a wall. To <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, I, I like banging at a wall. That's good. It makes us somewhere. So it what, somewhere rather than in a booth. It's true. What's um, it's just a BBC sound effects record. What's the uh, what's come on? That? Every single League of Gentlemen fan in the world goes, yeah. "Wow, look at the detail of that." You lot were you were you lot were on fire. Wow, you're very kind. Yeah, there was lovely. a th- there's a strange thing I think about. Um, I, I well, I made a documentary for years ten years ago about horror movies and. Um, and I had I interviewed Jimmy Sangster, who, was, who wrote a lot of early Hammer movies and then eventually directed some, not very well to his own, his own credit. Uh, but it was a really interesting and frustrating interview because he, he wrote Curse of Frankenstein 
and uh, it was a huge success. And he did Dracula, and then they said, we need Revenge of Frankenstein. He said, well, we can't. He gets guillotined at the end. No, he doesn't. And he was a really very, very straightforward guy. His autobiography, brilliantly, was called Do You Want It Good or Tuesday? (laughs) And his screenplay for Dracula is so clever. He takes the, the novel... And he distills it into 88 minutes. And he does this, there's this fantastic idea straight away. Jonathan Harker comes to Castle Dracula, as per. You meet Christopher Lee for the first time. It's his first one. He's only 38. He looks amazing, sexy man, very urbane. Mr. Harker, Count Dracula, all that. Mm. He shows him to his room. Harker gets his diary out and writes, I, I'm here at Castle Dracula. Now I can finally destroy this monster. And there's a brilliant narrative leap. He's come there to kill him. Yeah. You go, wow. I, mean, it's just, I remember just thinking, what a brilliant idea. Now, I said to Jimmy Sachs that 50 years after his film had been made and it was celebrated all over the world, this is a really brilliant idea. Oh, it's just a sausage factory. We just, you know, I just did it. And he wouldn't take credit, remarkably. I thought even after 50 years, you must think you've something... Something yeah. happened. But what I love, and the reason I say this about doing the league and everything, is that is that actually I rather love the idea that in in the sort of in the furnace of making stuff, if you intend to make art, you never do. But if you're just making stuff that you believe in and you have faith in and you think is good, it it, it is it will be somewhere in the gaps, people go. That's rather good, isn't it? Or that's yeah. rather clever, or that, or, or, or that means something to me. And I think that's the way to do it. I think if people, I think if people sort of set out with high ideals, they, they always fall down. But if some, you know, twenty years later, someone comes up to you and says that they grew up watching the League of Gentlemen or something, and and then what it meant to them, or it made them, inspired them to do something, I find that really, that's all you can ask for. No, it's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, it's a lovely thing. Uh, I've not got any adverts that have done that to people at all. <laughs> Can't imagine it. <laughs> I think that one about the the, gra- the grand one. I remember that. I didn't get it. I remember that one you did about the, you know, the bank of mum and dad. Yeah, exactly. I hope you have a grand time. And I was going, why is he? So- I just say that. I just didn't. <laughs> I'm so thick. It took me ages to realise what it meant. <laughs> I think there's more to your. Your life and career with those adverts. <laughs> Are you saying I was subtle? <laughs> Maybe that's what it was. Oh my god! <laughs> Fright the life out of me. <laughs> I got an, an email from someone wanting to do a podcast, and I said, "Can I say no?" Certainly for now, because I'm doing several, and I don't want to feel like you know you get worn out. And I, he said, "Yes, someone should do one called a podcast about people doing podcasts." I said, "I've decided to do one called same old shit." <laughs> <laughs> The genuine problem, actually, the reason it's lovely to do something like this is that you often, so often, do get asked exactly the same things. And yeah. I, I love doing Q and As. I do them all the time. I just, I love talking to people. I could do it for hours. I just find it so stimulating and fun. Often, the problem is that the the moderator, the interviewer, will will tell, will ask you questions that everyone in the audience knows the answer to mm. because they've come. That's why they've come. And you and tell I'll say, that story again. Yeah, and you, yeah. I said. Uh, there's a few things, just a few things off limits. Please don't ask me how we came up with Sherlock, how the League of Gentlemen met, and then they do it. And of course, you just kind of feel duty bound. And I think, 
here we go again. I'm actually <laughs> think sometimes thinking of changing the story. You know, <laughs> I remember years ago reading that Michael Gambon got so sick of answering the same questions that he started to claim in interviews that he was gay, just just to change the record. And uh, and I think it kind of got some currency. And then Time Out interviewed him, and and, uh, and I think they sort of led with saying, "Is it true you're you're gay?" And he said, "Yeah, but well, I, I gave it up." <laughs> the guy said, "Why?" And he said, "It made my eyes water." <laughs> uh, he was an inveterate game player. Well, he is an inveterate game player. I, I heard a story of him. Uh, that he was in New York with Al Pacino and uh, De Niro having dinner. And they said to him, so this, you know, what's this? You know, you're Sir Michael now, what's that? And he said, oh, it's nothing. It doesn't, it means, you know, I mean, in England, it means I can sleep with any English woman I choose. And, um, and then they went, oh, fuck off, get out of here. He went, well, you know, I mean, we don't use it, obviously, because we're gentlemen, but, uh, but I could. And all women know it. If I go up and, you know, insist, I'm afraid they have to do it. And he went, yeah, again. He said, okay. So he went to the bar and he said, sorry, is anybody English here? This woman went, yes, I am. He said, very beautiful woman. He said, Could, I'm over here with, as she says, Al Pacino, rolled in there. Yes, we all know. He said, all oh, right, good. Well, see, I've told them that me being a certain, he told her the story. And he said, I wonder when you finish your drink, if you'd come over and say, I'm ready now, Sir Michael. Oh, my God. Brilliant. And apparently she did. And he yeah, got yeah, up and yeah. walked out with her, leaving them with their chins on the ground. That's the way to do it. You, you need, those sort of jokes need sort of, Prep, don't they? My friend of mine um, is from Barnsley, and its parents were visiting London, and they were walking through Soho, and they're getting on, so it was taking a while. And he he nipped ahead down just off Rupert Street, and there was a girl outside a you know massage parlor, and he gave like fifty quid. He said, "There's an old man coming round the corner. When he comes round the corner, just say to him, Eric, where have you been?'" <laughs> Beautifully typed thing, and then he just sort of wandered back. And about five minutes later, they finally came down the alleyway between Rupert Street and Old Common Street. And this girl comes out, says, "There, he's got his face and his wife. He's got she. I don't, I don't know, I don't know." I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, oh, that's brilliant! So good, oh, yes, fantastic. Fan. Right, so we've got basically. I, I bring you a time capsule into which you put. What may seem insignificant things to other people, but to you are significant from your life. I'd have to put Doctor Who in there mm. because it's it's sort of almost my earliest memory, and it's been obviously a huge part of my career. But there's a there's a, if I can explain, I suppose what it is. Um, you know, so literally one of my earliest memories is is watching John Pertwee's first story, uh, Spearhead from Space, where the Autons. The shop window dummies come to life, and I I was so frightened. I can I have I have memories of the fear, which is you know what I mean. Um, I remember clutching my my mum had a sheepskin coat, and I can remember clutching her skirts when we went past March the Tailor in Newton Aycliffe High Street because I was so frightened. I was four, four or five, and the reason I would put I put that in is because it's that that healthy. Fear is something I've always loved. It's not a negative memory. It's a, it's something that still thrills me, you know. And Doctor Who being um, such an amazing sort of thread through my life, uh, I sort of you know carried the, the torch during the interregnum when it wasn't on, and then when it came back, I was I wrote for the first series of Christopher Eccleston, and then for every subsequent Doctor. And um, it's just an amazing thing to sort of 
have. But the the, the reason it's more than a TV program is 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 really um, it's hard to describe because it's it's partly nostalgia, it's partly an ongoing tapestry of things. But the the thing that if I can sort of quantify it, um, when I was a kid, uh, there was something magic about where it was. It was usually on in the winter. It was a Saturday night. And to this day, even though Grandstand isn't on, the end of the sports report, it still makes me go a bit funny. Mm. It's sort of Proustian. Something about that moment of that... It's weirdly... It's the, it's the absolute opposite of Doctor Who. It's big butch men kicking a ball about in the freezing cold. <laughs> but what's about to come around the corner is magic. Yeah. And, and to this day... On a Saturday night, in Doctor Who's on Sundays now, but there's a sort of something in the air about it. And I can reproduce it if I want. If I remember when Doctor Who was off, when it, uh, when it was cancelled in 1989 and before it came back, there was some point in the 90s that I, on a Saturday afternoon, it was just becoming crepuscular. It was just about you know, quarter, to, quarter to five, getting dark. I put the video of a John Pertwee story on and I felt it in the back of my neck. It was like, it, it, you can do this if you like. You can actually recreate these circumstances, and it, and it's very it's very delicate. You can't, you know, it's like it would just go in an instant. Mm-hmm. But there's something there's something in the DNA of the program which still does that to me. Obviously, does it to an awful lot of people. Um, so, I, for all kinds of complicated reasons, both professional and personal and emotional. Uh, I'd, I'd have to put Doctor Who in there. Yes. You're not strangely scared of fear, mm. are you? And you relish it, really. You, you, yes, you revel it, in it. It's, it's a bit like being um, a sort of addict who, who's no longer capable of getting high. <laughs> <laughs> I, it takes a lot to frighten me. I mean, I jump, you know, I jump at things because everyone jumps at jump scares, but the, I feel, and I'm not being sort of blasé about this, but... Time and time again, people will say, "Oh, this! Oh my God, this is the new, this is the new Exorcist," and, and I kind of go along and go. Hmm. And it sometimes, you know, there are some there's some wonderful films, particularly from the Far East, um, Korean horror films, that are really genuinely disturbing. I think the last time I was genuinely scared properly was The Ring, or the, the original Ring. That's really scared the life out of me. <laughs> I mean, probably sort of stayed with me. But it's remarkable how how few things do. And I sometimes feel slightly like I've been massively desensitised, you know. And I, but what, what appeals to me, though, is is novelty. It's, it's, it's a fresh take on something. It's like a new way of finding something out. And there was a film um, I saw a couple of years ago called Hereditary with Tony Collette and Gabriel Byrne. And it was like, the, the word, I, the epithet I use for almost everything these days, it's a bit daft. <laughs> <laughs> it was daft. At the end, I just went, this is daft. But it had moments. Um, it has elderly naked Satanists, which really do still scare me, from Rosemary's Baby onwards. I, there's something wrong about that. It feels terribly plausible. But there's a really brilliant bit. Tony Collette's mother has died. and She's a strange woman. Basically, turns out she's a, she was a Satanist. And, and Tony Collette is going through her stuff in a box room, just going through her books and stuff. And it's just getting dark again. And then she just puts a book down she just peers into the corner and we and she can you can just see 
just see a figure. It's sort of almost like made of particles of daylight. Or it's just her mother, just sort of there. And then she turns the light on. It's gone a bit. It was, it was really good. I mean, I, and I, think, I remember thinking, that's how you would see a ghost if you saw a ghost. Mm-hmm. It's, you just sort of turn around and you go, oh, my God, there's something there. Really good. The rest of the film, really daft. But <laughs> <laughs> it tends to be sort of moments, I think, you know. It's funny because, for me, the choice was, this really frightens me, I won't watch it again. Mm. Well, it's a, I hear that a lot. And it's amazing how many people really don't, they don't want to go there at all. But to me, it's always been like a... A funfair feel. I mean, I'm much more frightened of roller coasters than horror films. Um, but that sort of, it's it's a joyous thing. It's a, it's an, genuinely the flip side of, of a laugh. I think it's it's always very noticeable. If you go and see a horror movie in a cinema, the right the right one, there'll be a, a scream and then everyone laughs. It's it's what you do straight away. It's a huge relief. Thing. Yeah, and it's good. I think it's it's very healthy. You be, we need to be very careful about not cosseting children particularly from that because you know um it's a good thing i mean it's you can argue to be blue in the face about what constitutes a sort of health healthy fear or whatever but and children find their own things mm. when i was a child the things i were i was most afraid of were wolves and quicksand i was so frightened of quicksand oh and being buried alive none of which were likely to happen but I, how they crept into my consciousness, maybe from Tarzan films, quicksand yeah. or something. You know. I remember I was terribly afraid as well of walking along the pier, the seaside, because you could see the sea underneath it. I somehow thought I would fall through. You know, I remember my mum saying, I think you're all right. <laughs> <laughs> I was very skinny, but not that skinny. <laughs> um, but it's a real, um, it's a buzz, I think. And, and I do, I mean, I am in search of, constantly in search of it. However, the, the flip side of that is I, I, I can't... There are some things I can't watch. I've become increasingly squeamish as I've got older. And I absolutely can't watch um, home invasion films. I like supernatural horror films. That's not going to happen. The idea of coming home and finding someone holding your loved ones hostage, it, I can't go there. And yeah. there's some, there are some very good ones, but I, I can't do it. I, I, I think it was Funny Games... Which is an amazing film, but that I just thought I never want to see anything like this again. No. And now there's loads of them. And, and there's a difference between a, a sort of a gore fest mm. and a horror film, isn't it? As you say, that moment in that film where you just get an image of a ghost for a second and then it's gone. Yeah. yeah. And that is really frightening. But having lots of horror going on around you is not so frightening. It depends, what it, it depends on taste, you know, and, and um, I'm a big fan of. Val Luton, the great um, Hollywood um, horror producer, and, and his films are psychological horror films, and uh, you you know you, you never see the cat in cat people. You don't know if it's, she's really transformed. It's just these a brilliant series of technical exercises. You know, the famous thing when she's walking and being pursued by high heels, and then and then you see that they've become paw prints, and then she's standing just at the side of Central Park, and it suddenly goes. And it's the air brakes of a bus, uh, and, and it became known as a Luton bus. It's a technique, brilliant idea. And the whole cinema screamed. It's never lost its power. So clever. You never see anything. And you stare into the dark thinking you see things. The Blair Witch Project did amazingly. You never see anything. But I remember peering at that 
looking for whatever it was, you know. Um, and But then equally, people really like the sort of, the excesses of it. A film like John Carpenter's The Thing, which is this sort of Francis Bacon-esque body horror. It's an extraordinary film. Really brilliant, I think. But, I mean, you can't, that's the other extreme, you know. My favourite bit of that, when the, the famous bit when they're, they're giving CPR to the guy and and his chest suddenly opens up and bites off the guy's hands. <laughs> his ha- his head comes off like pizza cheese, grows legs and scuttles across the floor. And one of the guys goes, you've got to be fucking kidding. That's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. But I interviewed John Carpenter and he didn't, he doesn't like Luton. He says, he, he said, if you, if you've got a monster, you've got to fucking show it. And I, I, I basically, I think there's room for both. Of course there yeah. is, you know, Tuesday, Thursday, maybe you want something a bit more subtle. Mm. But it's a, it's a, it's an endless debate, and it's never going to go away because no. um, people, some people like it, some people object to it, some people think it needs to be policed, and that's that's what we've always lived with, you know. Um, but I think a, a a healthy scare. The reason, you know, Doctor Who's there are things I've never forgotten, and they tend to be scary moments, but they're. You say to someone of a certain age, and you remember the one with the maggots, the one with the spiders, and the one with the giant spiders. And and you know instantly what you're talking about. It's a series of sort of diamond-like memories of of something it did to you. you know? Yeah. And sometimes we just both were lucky enough to work with Tom Baker recently, weren't we? And and Tom tells a wonderful story about walking through Liverpool and this homeless guy. He said, "Oh, yeah, have you got this?" Spare change, and Tom was rooting his pockets, and he went, "Doctor," and and Tom said he, he looked at this guy, and he said he could see for a moment he was transported back to a time when he was safe, and his man was making beans on toast, and and his face finally said, "Get us out of here, doctor." Oh my god! Oh, 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 no, doesn't it? Oh my! Yeah. Beautiful. Oh, that must have been mm. wonderful, but awful for mm. him. Awful. Oh, poor man. Oh, well, then we're definitely going to put Doctor <laughs> into the time capsule. <laughs> well, it was very appropriate to go to the time capsule. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll put it in there, and when we go back, it'll be somewhere else. Mm. <laughs> it was never there. So that's number one. Mm. What's number two for you? Um, I would have to say, this is difficult, isn't it? Because you, you start to think about who you owe allegiance to and everything, and uh, it's it's obviously more abstract than that, isn't it? But um, I'd have to I'd have to say dogs, <laughs> um, and any specific dog? Well, this one, ah, the one that's lying between us, and our previous one, Bunsen, who we lost at Christmas before last. But I grew up with dogs, and we had a West Highland Terrier called Whiskey, and I remember the planning of getting her, and. We were all terribly excited about it. So this is 1973, it was. Terribly excited about getting a dog. But I remember thinking, well, we all, I wanted to call it Churchill or Winston or something like that, uh, something unusual. And my dad said, no, it's called, it's called whiskey. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and we had the whiskey for many years. And then she ran off, off the street when she was on heat and came back pregnant. Uh, by this mongrel of the, of the, uh, called Shane. Shane's always a mysterious stranger, even as a dog. And <laughs> she had a litter of puppies. They all died except one. And we kept 
we were going to keep it, we weren't going to keep it. It was on off, on off, on off. And we kept it. I thought, oh, now's the time we're going to call it something interesting. <laughs> That's it. It's called brandy. <laughs> so we had whiskey and brandy for it, and then whiskey died and brandy got knocked over. But I... I all, I've always loved dogs. I don't. I genuinely don't. Th- I don't think you can trust people who don't like dogs. I don't think I like cats as well. You don't have to be one or the other. It's not like that. But if people don't like dogs, I think there's something wrong with them. I think dogs can sniff something about them. Um, so I always wanted another one. My partner Ian had never had a dog and always wanted one. His mum, who is now slavishly devoted to, to all animals. Uh, wasted years, sadly, in not allowing them anything until Ian's younger brother, she noticed, was dragging a, a toilet roll around with a piece of string pretending it was oh. a pet, she thought. So she relented and they got a rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> but Ian had always wanted one. And then, so this is um, this is uh, 15 years ago now, um, we talked about it and then suddenly it just happened. It just happened in that way. We were, it was Ian's birthday... Some friends came, they had two labs and they had a litter and it was just a coincidence that one of them which was going to go to, to an old lady suddenly decided she couldn't cope and they had a spare one we went, oh, this is, this is the time. Yeah. And Bunsen was a... And then so I finally got the chance. I thought, I'm going to give the stupid name, it's my chance. <laughs> um, and Bunsen was just the light of our lives. I often say that I think having a dog is like having a fool... And there's a reason why kings and queens used to have them. It's a good idea. I mean, you know, they they have a different sort of role in terms of sort of speaking truth to power, which dogs do. But in terms of making you laugh every single day, that sheer, I know it's a cliche to say, but the sheer exuberant joy of coming home to someone who really wants to see you, mm. even if you've been out for 30 seconds, because <laughs> they totally forget. <laughs> Maybe I should just get a goldfish. Um, <laughs> and, and just the, the fun of it, you know, and the... We, we we try and have holidays. I love having like week long holidays in this country, which we call blusteries, where you go somewhere in like mid February at the coast and just take the dog. Dog dog holidays are are, are so good for you. I think mm. so good for your head and good for you in every way. Just sort of, it's it's just seeing the the joy that they have from running around on the sea chasing balls or whatever. And but then that lovely coming back feeling and and falling asleep by the, by the fire and everything. They, they, do, they know what they're doing, dogs. They know what they're doing. They've got it right. And so Bunsen was like, um, he was like a puppy till he had a sort of minor stroke uh, a couple of years ago. And he lasted about another 18 months. The end was quite difficult. He got very frail. His back leg starts to go. And we made the very different decision, which felt terribly disloyal of getting another one as a crossover which is Bob here. And, but it was a really good idea and I would recommend it to anyone. Because as mercenary as you feel, you know, it's like, here's the replacement. It, it really helped with Bunsen and I. But also, for the last year of his life, the, having the two of them together, it really perked Bunsen up. Yeah, it so was, it helped him as it well. It really did. I mean, it was, fun. It was sometimes, he, you know, he, Bob was bothering him and, and he was like, he just was a tired old man. He yes. just kind of going, oh, shut up. But it was, <laughs> There was, it was lovely to see them together, yeah. And and they really, um, they did, I think it really helped both of them. And uh, and I, you know, he's an old soul, isn't it? But they're, they're our best friend and um, and they bring an awful lot to your life. I think that just 
purely practically gets you out of the house in a way that almost nothing else does. You know, exercise is voluntary. I, I run a bit, but it's hard in the winter. You don't want to get out of bed. But you have to take the dog out. Mm. And it does something different. And it does, it stimulates the same things. You come back from a big walk, you have a lot of fresh air, and you feel a bit more, right, I'm ready to take the day on. And, and um, It's a very sociable activity. Oh, well, yeah. I don't, do, you have, do you have to? I don't have a dog, um, no. I've never had a dog. You should get uh, it. I, I know. <laughs> I would love to have a dog. No. Mm. My wife won't take on the responsibility, mm. I think, is, uh, and that's understandable, because it is a responsibility. Yes, yes. Yeah. But there's, a, there's so much joy to be had. The, the curious thing about the social act, uh, angle is that you, you meet people through having a dog... And you never know their names. You know their dogs' names. Yes. You just it becomes too late. I can't ask. I can't ask. <laughs> no, but you know their dogs. And then and then what? And then you never see them again. And clearly, the dog has died. Oh lord! And they just vanish. This has happened to us so often. There were there, there were people who populated our lives with Bunsen, and I I saw one the other day, and it was I went, oh my god! Of course, her dog, which was quite elderly when we knew, but it's, isn't that strange? They just they're there every day right at the same time for years and years and years and then they're not you know it's uh it's a if the dog's thing. not there they don't do the walk no or, or maybe they just do something different unless they get a different dog but it it's it is funny how people pass out of your life like that yeah having been a big part of it and it's the the dog is the connective tissue you know? mm. yeah. uh, how old was bunsen when he died he was 13 13 um and it happened uh it happened very quickly, went downhill very quickly. Ian was doing panto in Rotherham. And the, he just, I just, I took him out and he fell over and he couldn't get up. Uh-huh. And I, I, I had to get him to the vet. It was really complicated. And, and, and the vet was a wonderful vet. And he said, this is it, really. It won't be long, a few days. And we made elaborate plans. Um, this is like the Wednesday, Tuesday or Wednesday. Uh, and Ian was going to come down after his second show on the Sunday, get Mondays off, and we were going to do it then. Which again, it's like so difficult. You think, but it's what you have to do now to be practical. And in the end, it, he just I rang Ian up on the Thursday and said he's not going to last. That it just isn't going to last that long. And it was really difficult. Um, but <laughs> uh, it's incredibly it's, traumatic. Isn't oh it? my god, yes. And and there's so much. The investment, you know, like it's like having a child, and and um, in and I had to take him. A friend was wonderful, just took us, and Ian skyped, and it was uh, it was. I mean, obviously, it wasn't ideal, but it was better than nothing. And it was we just had to make a decision, and it was very quick. I mean, it's like a barbiturate injection. Yeah, that's it. But um, but just to say goodbye. Yeah. Yeah. And then the strength, the funniest thing was. Um, so he got his ashes back and we t- talked about scattering them, you know, on, on the beach or something. And then he said, well, why don't we put them in the garden? Um, do you think a, a plaque would be too much? And I said, no, why? No, why not? So <laughs> we're having a statue made like Petra. <laughs> Blue Peter, all about Blue Peter. Um, we're having a little statue made. Um, with, we're going to put the ashes in. So they're just in there like, like people do with their... Relatives yes. just end up putting them on a shelf. Yeah. But it's honestly, it's uh, every now and then you do, you do, we suddenly look at old pictures. We're looking at pictures for this bust, you know, and 
And you remember, and then videos as well. I mean, technology has changed so much, so brilliantly for that because you just have, uh, you know, I've got Super 8 footage of, of whiskey and brandy, but there's not very much. But just, we've got hundreds of hours of Hudson chasing yeah. balls and stuff and uh, Bob. So, um, yeah, I would, um, I would recommend that to anyone. Right. And we'll put, well, do you want to put, uh, do you want to put whiskey, brandy? I want to put dogs in. But, but dogs I don't in I, they have to have air holes. Yes. <laughs> and food. Yes. I could have to be taken for walks. It's going to have to be opened every now and again. We'll take them out. Actually, I'll make it big enough this time, capsule. So that they can, we talk, we, got, we've already established it's a TARDIS. So exactly. It's, it's got hills. Yeah. It's got woodland. Good they can chase rabbits to their heart's content. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Lovely. Okay. Right. That's two. Right. We're going to take a short break for some adverts. We'll be back very shortly. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome back. Okay, let's find out what Mark Gatiss would like to put into the time capsule as his third item. Uh, Alan Bennett, as long as there's air holes, I'm going to. This is difficult because there's so many people, you know, who influence one. Uh, but I, I always come back to Alan because I, I said the, the very first thing I can remember watching of his was a wonderful play called Our Winnie. And I think I only watched it because that was my mum's name. I think I just noticed it in the schedules. It's about 1976, something like that. I don't know it. Uh, it's, and it's just a half-hour play, the way that we used to have plays like that. And it's about Elizabeth Spriggs, the great Elizabeth Spriggs, taking her sort of mentally disabled daughter to the crematorium on a Sunday. And I remember just watching it, very similar to the feeling I had watching Kez, just thinking, how do you know this? Mm. I knew every person in it. I knew the wet cremeness of it, the, 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 the clumsy girl with the big buttons, the, the sort of elderly ladies, the smell of doilies. Yeah. So it was, I just remember thinking, this, what? This is like a 
someone looking into my life, my head. And of course, you don't know you know it until somebody shows it to you. Absolutely. And also, you think, oh, it's, but it's also, it's on the telly. It's, it's art. <laughs> How could that be? It's just life. But, and I, I remember, you know, starting to read around, I mean, obviously a bit later, but discovering who he was and beyond the fringe and then, uh, obviously Talking Heads, which was a huge influence on me. And, but all those beautiful plays, I watched, I remember watching them so well. Um, me, I'm afraid of Virginia Woolf, and uh, the voice. There's one. There's one called All Day on the Sands, about a couple who retire from Leeds to Morecambe, I think, and then realise they've got nothing to do. It's so beautiful, and and like you know, Bergman could have made it. It's a Morecambe, It's like a Bergman in Morecambe, but the the old guy he gets a all he gets is a presentation on a clock for fifty years service and everything, and they they move into this place, and it, of course, initially it's. It's like, oh, lovely. And then the next day it's the same and then they just sit in a shelter. And then he, they're passing the gents and he just goes, I'm just going to shed a tear. Oh. <laughs> and he doesn't come out and he has a stroke. And then the next shot is her in, in their bed on her own. And, you know, there's such an amazing truth to it, such a brilliant ear for for authentic dialogue, for the sort of messy silliness of life. But such, always such heart. I, I just, I, I, I love, I love his work so much. And it, it, it's, it's, it's spoken to me for years. And I remember and, uh, when his diaries first came out, um, writing home particularly is, is an absolute treasure trove. That I mean, every single entry is just honed to perfection. So many Funny stories. That famous one when he runs into Judy Dench at an opening or something. She says, are you still writing your lovely plays? And he writes, still, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and all these, you know, wonderfully barbed as well and funny things. And But um, more than anything, a kind of tremendous sort of um, compassion, I think, for, for people, that, mm. you know, an, an amazing eye for detail. He's a, he has a historian's eye, which I think is also beautiful. And he, he applies a, a historian's eye to his own life. And this is a fabulous bit when he when he, he comes across a list that his mum's made, I think when he's clearing the stuff when she's died, and it says something like, my good coat, um, second best person. He says it's like the contents of a medieval will. Oh, God, that's, that's just so great, isn't it? Mm. And then when... Um, when they're casting 40 years on, uh, it was the same time as Oliver. And they had tremendous trouble trying to get enough boys for the school because of Oliver. And he writes, Lionel Bart has cut a sway through the nation's youth like the 1418 war. <laughs> <laughs> Just immaculate, wow. you know. And as, of course, he admits himself, he... He has revised his diaries. He's, he hasn't just come up with these brilliant lines every single day of his life, but just the, just the wonderful scope of them. And I remember also finding it interesting as a sort of, almost as a blueprint of what, what I might do. You know that you look at this as an actor who's written these plays, and then he mm-hmm. becomes a professional playwright, and then he moves between TV and stage. Back latterly, much more back to stage with the kind of the national and. And just the sort of um, and film, and film, minutes. yes, and private function, and mm. is absolutely superb screenplay for prick up your ears, which is my 
it's how to do it. I've, I've, I love that film. I love that film more every time I see it. It's so clever. And um, when I was writing um, An Invention in Space and Time, the, about the creation of Doctor Who, I watched it a lot as a sort of how to do a biopic, really. And I was lost in admiration for the little touches. It's this incredible bit. They were shot in St. Peter's Street down there, which mm. is the parallel road to Knoll Road where Orton and Halliwell actually lived. But it's just the next street along. And Orton, uh, Gary Oldman, um, is going off to see the Beatles because he wrote a screenplay for the Beatles. You know, and and um, he goes down, there's a Rolls Royce waiting and uh, they're standing in the pouring rain and he's forgotten the screenplay. So Aliwal comes down and he's standing there with a the neighbour in the rain and he says, that was Paul McCartney, you know. She goes, oh, Ken, you will have some memories. <laughs> she goes, you won't. You yeah. know what's going to happen. No. But um, and he also says brilliantly, Islington's coming up, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> but but there's so many little touches. There's so Alden and Halliwell meet at a Rada audition, and Halliwell does this just to be or not to be, and you only see the committee in silhouette at the back, and it's Rosamund Knight, I think, says he. He's quite tall, and someone says, we seem to be taking anything that's standing up today. <laughs> but then Orton comes on, and he does Captain Hook and Smee and Peter Pan, and he has a, he has an umbrella handle for a hook, and he does the, he does the clock and everything. Very inventive, Mr Orton. But I only noticed on the umpteenth viewing that the bit he's doing of, um, of Peter Pan is, he says, get me a boy, Smee, get me a boy, which uh. is... It's Orton, you know, yeah. I mean, that's his life. Yeah. Get me a boy. And uh, it's so full of, like, grace notes like that, you know, fantastic stuff. Have you met him? Yes, I have. Um, I wish I could say I, I knew him well. Uh, I've met him many times. He's a, we went to see uh, in do a talk uh, at the BFI um, years ago and... You know, someone said, what, what do you like on TV these days? And he said, oh, The League of Gentlemen. And we were all in the audience. Was like, And then we met him afterwards and he signed a book with admiration. Alan Bennett's like, I mean, what can you say? Wow. Then he came to the launch of our script book. Um, I've seen him on and off many times over the years and he's, he's a delightful man. And and, and then the, the, the best thing for me was I did Desert Island Discs and, and I mentioned him. And there's this thing he talks about in his diaries where... Um, which is in the History Boys, which is you, you read a passage or you see something like I saw with our Winnie and, and it's like someone has held out their hand from the past year. And then that's Hector's thing, isn't it? Pass it on, pass it on. And and I said this, I said that about our Winnie and, and, and he sent me this little postcard and he said, I was, in, I was so stuck, uh, like creatively blocked. And he said, I listened to Desert Island Disc and it really bucked me up. And I was, I'm like, oh. my God, what more can you ask for? It's it inspired him to write more. Yeah. How marvellous. Um, yeah. I love that. I love his lack of sort of uh, social persona, as it were, mm. his lack of, you know, that, that being a star or being famous or successful, that, that he just lives his life. And well, it's that, you know, it's just so many times that if you look at the people who've turned down honours, <laughs> that's the list, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. And he's one of them. But it's also that, um, he's he's very honest about things. Um, that despite all that wonderful self-effacement, he says, "Oh, there's, but there's a, there's a real streak. There's a streak of tinsel runs right through of it." It's true. I think you can tell he likes a gossip, he likes <laughs> a bitch, 
And that idea of that sort of sort of spitting image cliche of him as just this homely northern it's not true at all. There's a wonderfully sharp edge to him, which which is what you know makes it work, I think. The only surviving member of Beyond the Fringe. I know. My God. Extraordinary. Yeah. Such a memorable thing for me, Beyond the Fringe. Mm. It's such an important sort of stepping stone. The idea that people would go up to Edinburgh and do stuff and then come to London and be yeah. successful with silly sketches. It sort of opened the door for all of us. I remember Eric Idle talking about being at the back, you know, completely sold out auditorium and the thrill of... I mean, it's impossible to imagine that, isn't it? But just the fact that they were doing... They were taking the piss out of Harold Whitman it was like, oh, my God, imagine it, <laughs> Of course, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, bless him. Bless Alan Bennett, mm. I agree with you. Marvellous, what a great man. We're very lucky to have had him in this world and you are going to have him in your time capsule. So it seems. Because <laughs> he can take the dogs for a walk do it. Yes. <laughs> and have a look at any doctor who he wants. <laughs> it's all working. It's working beautifully. <laughs> um, and then fourthly, I'm going to... Um, it, it, I've, I've thought about this, but it's actually rather... It's timely because Mark Crowley has just died. But Ian and I did a production of The Boys in the Band in 2016, 2017. And um, it, this this is great because it covers so many things. I've never really worked with Ian before, so it was a fabulous thing. And obviously sometimes these things are not meant to happen, are they, <laughs> if you're nearest and dearest. But we had, a, we had such a good time. Um, the play means an awful lot to me. I saw the movie when I was a nascent gay and never left me for all kinds of reasons, you know. Um, and it's it's one of those things, it's gone in and out of fashion so many times over the years as being very negative portrayal, but it's also extremely truthful. And what we found doing the show again was, um, yeah, we, we, did, we did a little tour as well, lots of Q&As, and I remember this guy saying, I came, I came to see this because I thought, why on earth are they disinterring this old fossil? He said, I can't, and I just can't tell you how relevant it felt. And then, like a 20-year-old guy, so it's all, it's, it's basically a party that goes wrong, you know, and, mm. and it's booze-fueled, all about booze, and Mart was a terrible drinker and then became a reformed drinker. And um, this 20-year-old this guy, he just said, he just said, well, that's my Saturday night. <laughs> and, you know, people tearing lumps out of each other. And it was really interesting to see how relevant it was. It was also that the, the nine of us, we're still in touch. We have we, we we meet up a lot, and 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 Mark Crowley said to us, um, he said, "Oh, that he said that happens," and you know it's been done many times. And he said sometimes the cast don't always gel, or he said, but something happens, and and they tend to sort of keep in touch. Something goes on, and that's not the case with every show you do. But no, hardly um, any really. It's I mean, it's just right. You have a fondness for people, but yeah. the thing of staying in touch, yeah. It's easy with WhatsApp. <laughs> but um, it was just, overall just an extraordinary experience. I mean, part of Harold, we, you know, which I'd always wanted to do and I was too old for, but it was, you know, such a joy. Um, as It was just a sort of, it was everything about it. It's one of those ones mm. that you, you do think, well, that was rather special. And actually, we rather beautifully, we knew it was special at the time. The, the, the last performance was really tough. We all got very choked and it's a sort of, Farewell symphony of, of, of goodbyes and everyone going off. That was really difficult. And and because Mark Crowley was came over, it was amazingly encouraging. He wrote some new stuff for it. 
um, you know, to cover a few cuts and, 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 and update a few things. And, and he'd never done that before, you know. And, and then um, the last day of the vaudeville, um, he took us out for dinner between shows. And I said to him, um, come on, you can say it now, Martin, near at the end of it. We're your favourite cast, aren't you? Favourite ever cast. And he said, <laughs> you're my favourite living cast. <laughs> and he looked around the table and said, at least I think some of you are still alive. <laughs> <laughs> so um, everything, everything, the, the importance of it is as the original gay play, mm. sort of resurrecting it and showing that it was still had a lot to say, uh, doing it with Ian and having the playwright there, um, it was just special. You know? mm. So, I mean, I thought of, there's all kinds of things. I, equally, um, I was in Season's Greetings at the National and we, we meet up every Christmas. Oh, hello. Except this year, we actually had to do it, in, we had to do it early February because we couldn't do it. But we really try and, and, and I love doing that and it's lovely to see, sometimes you haven't seen people again within the year whenever people's lives go all over the place. But, but I think everything about the boys in the band was special and, and it was one of those if we could we would have done it a lot longer but there's something rather magical about just the sort of specificity of that point you know mm. it already and as it already feels like years it, it, I can't believe how quickly it goes it, it felt very it felt very present for the time we were doing it it's strange isn't it how it's still difficult for young men to go through that journey of, of saying uh, yes I am gay it's it's difficult, you know. Say, it, it, you can you can look at people's lives, and you immediately imagine everything's the progress goes in one direction, as it were. So, the multiplicity of dating apps has changed everything. Ian and I met online before it was even remotely fashionable. It was actually, obviously, one of those things you didn't ever admit to. People just do it, of course. I mean, yeah. it's the most obvious thing in the world. Yeah, you're relying blind chance. People, uh, kids now just go, no, fuck that. I want to meet someone I'm compatible with. Why wouldn't I? It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But you, you mustn't think that that means everything's solved because what it actually it leads to is a different set of problems. Yes, it's much more. People are much more alienated. Um, the social glue of going out for a drink, which is dissipating and pubs and venues, gay venues, particularly closing all over the place because people aren't going out the same way. They don't have to. So you swap, you, you, you know, this is the other thing I should have, I could have put this in easily because it's one of my favorite things, which is uh, the play Inherit the Wind, a marvelous play. It's about the Scopes monkey trial. It's a teacher put on trial in the twenties in Alabama for evolution. And, it's a wonderful play. Oh, the it film sounds is, like my sort of oh, play. Oh, I mean, the film's amazing. Spencer oh, I'm Tracy, look it up. Spencer Tracy and Frederick Martin. It's wow. fabulous. It's the greatest culture in drama by country miles. Brilliant. Spencer Tracy is basically Clarence Darrow. He's fictionalised about two years, and that's who they got to defend uh, the teacher. And he does this amazing... Every bit about it makes my hair stand on it, but these amazing impassioned speeches and... The, he, he, he brings the Bible in as an exhibit and he says something which I think should be written across every school in the world. It's a good book, but it's not the only book. Uh, it's full of, of, of sort of aphorisms like that, which are just so brilliant. But the other thing is um, he talks, it's about, obviously the whole thing is about evolution. It's about change. It's about the willingness to change. 
and he puts actually puts Frederick March in the witness box. He puts the the prosecutor as a as a defence witness, and 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 I won't spoil it because it, it, no. it's the most wonderful thing. But he says at one point, you, "We've got to change. Life depends on change, and um, you invent the telephone, but you lose the charm of distance." And isn't that wonderful? What a what a line! But that's what I mean. That's what it's all about. It's about the. Uh, for everything you gain, you lose something. Mm-hmm. So as the gay community, and in fact, the, the human community, has gained this incredible thing that there's never been more easy access to more knowledge, and yet people have never seemed more stupid yes. or more worse, more incurious, which I find so depressing. Mm. It's just desperately depressing. It's like, look it up. <laughs> you don't even have to go to a library now. But the incuriosity of it is really awful and danger, very dangerous. Mm. So to, to address your point, it's easy to imagine that everything has got better. But clearly, you know, you go out of our bubble here and there are isolated towns and villages where people don't feel like they've, they, they can come out or they still have really bad experiences. Their parents throw them out and it does still happen. It hasn't just got better. And, and obviously... It's so fragile. I saw a thing recently. I, I, it made my jaw drop. It was a discussion about essentially, you know, gay rights, and there were two young guys on it. As they were talking about decriminalisation in 1967, you could see it in their eyes, and then they both admitted they never knew it would it had been illegal. And you go, I mean, talk about check your privileges. Yeah. This is this as we speak. Half of Poland has declared itself to be LGBT free. Oh my lord! And there are camps in Chechnya. You know, they're only a few hundred miles from where we are now. It's so fragile, and that's not just LGBT rights. That's everyone's rights. When the world accepts such ridiculous arguments uh, as they do on all subjects, Trump constantly says them. Yeah. Uh, it is worrying, isn't it? I remember being in Australia and listening to a phone in, and for the first time a gay group of soldiers who'd fought in the Second World War were going to march independently on Anzac Day. And a woman rang and said, well, she said, it's the problem is, you see, they, before the war, uh, there was no homosexuality in Australia. And they all went over to Europe. Caught it. They caught it. Mm-hmm. That's basically what she was arguing. Mm-hmm. And the bloke went, yeah, no, it's a good point. It's not a good point. No, but the the um, irrationality it, it petrified me. The, the 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 mob mentality which we're seeing in Bogrel Wars, <laughs> it really frightens me because it, it's it's like that's that's what will do for us. Is a sort of, I mean, there's there's a perverse madness to it. The denial that the climate is really changing. What kind of air, whose air are these people thinking they're going to breathe? Whose air do they think their children and grandchildren are going to breathe? They're not li- live on another planet. This, this is it. Mm. And, and the way it's been politicised into a sort of poncy, negative, you know, wet liberal thing to not want to die. Yeah. <laughs> I find it, it's so depressing. Well, yeah. we, mustn't, we mustn't depress ourselves. I just no. need a wee. You have a wee, go Yes. You can leave that in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't believe I haven't seen that. No, I know. I mean, I adore Spencer Tracy. Oh, my God. Well, I mean, he really is uh, just, he's one of the greatest actors. Well, if not the greatest film actor of all time, I think. Uh, And Frederick March, I think it's his last film. 
Dick York from Bewitched. Yeah. And but most amazing, Gene Kelly, who it, straight. Really? Uh, he, he plays this sort of slimy reporter. He's amazing. Yeah. It's a, it's a wonderful film. The great thing is you can say that to me and I can just go home without a doubt almost immediately find it. Yeah. That, and that's, that's technology, isn't it? It's that's brilliant. so true. Yeah, I was watching something the other day that I got off iTunes that it was obscure and it, it would have taken a lot of finding. And I was mm. like, it's probably, oh, my God. And, and YouTube, I mean, there are things that I've talked about horror movies. I watch these uh, brilliantly obscure 70s Italian horror films it, they're in beautiful prints, just like just find them. Yeah, put them up there. I know, kind people. Bless <laughs> yeah, them, I know. But then again, not necessarily because you know somebody suddenly says, "Oh, have you seen yourself in the bill in 1984?" Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you go, "I know, I really don't want to see." That. <laughs> I was talking about that's what I've been watching. Obscure <laughs> horror films. Yeah. <laughs> All right, brilliant. So that's um, we have four lovely things mm. in there. So I'm afraid you have to think of something that. Um, that you're glad to get rid of. It's, I, I, I'm going to qualify this slightly in that I wouldn't, I'm going to put PE in um, because it distorted so much of my childhood. Yeah. I, I sort of can't not, but I'll qualify it in a minute. Um, so I was not, you know, asthmatic or fat or anything like that, but I always hated PE. <laughs> From very early age, the, I suppose the moment it, it ceased to be just running around and playing, it almost immediately became threatening. Mm. Mentioned Cares earlier, very early influence for me. But Brian Glover's performance is like again—you just go, "Well, that's that's everyone's PE teacher, isn't it?" Yeah. I, and I can remember the moment people put tracksuits on, they became monstrous, <laughs> and it only got worse. So. There was a sense very quickly, and it wasn't, I knew I was gay really, but I was also different. I just, I used to, my friend, my best friend and I used to walk around the perimeter of the football pitch talking about horror films until we get that football in the face that you always seem to get. It still happens to me. I'm like a magnet. If I walk past the playing field, the football will find my cheek <laughs> and make that weird spanging noise, that wet leather noise. <laughs> it, it's like a magnet. Um, but there was, there was a bullying thing about it, which was always there. Even at primary school, where I was very happy, there was a, oh, fuck, it's football. I don't want to play football. It's wet and cold. And also, it's very macho. And then it, when I went to secondary school, it really got worse. Uh, I had a, an awful PE teacher, a really awful, a brutish man. He looked like a Neanderthal, and he was just horrible. He wasn't a kiddie fiddler like some of the members of the staff. <laughs> but he was a brute and he he you could tell he relished the he relished the opportunity to 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 be brutish. That my secondary school was it was rugby was like I mean now it's like it's obviously terribly dangerous. They're trying to stop people from getting head injuries, but the main one for me was cross country, which I just couldn't bear. And I always used to start well. I was always a good sprinter, actually. Uh, and then the familiar and terrible feeling of the stitch. And that weird, like, taste of blood in your mouth, which is sort of irony taste from mm. it. And then I'd always end up being second from last with the fat boy. And uh, I remember once he said, please let me go first. He just wants to go. <laughs> but that was, a, you know, it was a, it was only a half an hour, but it was a, the, 
the anticipation of that misery. But the very worst one was actually when I was still at primary school. Um, <laughs> this is a long story. We started to learn how to swim. And I was rather looking forward to it. And our school didn't have a swimming pool, but there was one at the school a few miles away called Sugar Hill. And they had a pool, so that was traditional. I remember, I remember getting on the bus full of joys, thinking this would be fun. But by terrible, terrible coincidence... I got a Veruca, and literally like the week before we went for our first lesson, I remember showing it to my teacher, and she said, I think it probably is, but we'll ask Mrs. Elders, who was the teacher at the swimming pool, we'll ask her what she thinks. Oh, okay. I mean, this is like, talk about innocence. I went down on the school bus, we went to Sugar Hill, I trooped in, Mrs. Pallister was my teacher. And I rolled down my sock and showed her. And Mrs. Elders screamed at me and said, oh, get out of my swimming pool. I wasn't in the pool. I was just, you know, in the, just on the way in. And I looked at Mrs. Pallister, my teacher for backup, and she went, yes, how dare you? <gasps> and she, I've never forgotten it. It was total treachery. Oh. She was so afraid of Mrs. Elders, she just buckled. And I was, but you, and it was no good. And it, it ruined it for me. And so I couldn't go for like the first three weeks or something until it cleared up. And then after that, it was perpetual misery. I used to, it was on a Thursday, and the lead up to that um, got worse and worse and worse. I remember hoarding um, bicarbonate of soda tablets from Fine Fair supermarket, force feeding them to try and make myself sick. I would do anything to get off going because Mrs. Elders was such a bully. And because it, and it caused swimming so bloody important. It was, it was really important. And yet I, it was two years of utter, utter, utter misery. And to this day, the theme tune to Citizen Smith makes me feel happy because it was on Thursday nights, which meant it was over for another week. Talk about Proustian. Really mm. does. <laughs> it does because it was over. Oh, the Thursday night feeling, best feeling in the world. So that, there's loads of those. And, and then, then it, they just so, don't realise what they're doing. Or do they realise well, what they're doing? What intrigues me, Mike, is whether in, in the world we live in now, it must be very different, isn't it? It must you be. You would hope, wouldn't you? You would hope. But the, the, the reason I, I was going to qualify this from the beginning is I, I think, I, I, I really, really believe it's very important. And I love swimming now, and I run. I love running. It's the th- I wish I'd found it years ago. I'm quite good at it. And it's, it never occurred to me until, until, I, until I was in my uh, late 40s and it was a good thing to do. And I sometimes think, do you know what I'm doing? I'm volunteering to go on a cross-country run. But it's different because the whole circumstance is different. I'm doing it for myself and my own terms and everything. And it sort of worries me that something so crucial has been for years, so many years so badly taught. But I really feel very strongly about it that... that it, it, it has to be taught in an encouraging way. I can remember there was one wing with Mrs. Elders who was dead now. Uh, <laughs> she was off and we had a student teacher and it was like night and day. It was fun. It was inclusive. We did all that stuff, you know, with, with, um, with floats. And it was fun. I remember it just thinking, oh, this is how it can be. Mm. And it's so... Obviously, teaching is a fantastic and incredibly undervalued part of our of our lives and society. But it, it's also very easy to to get it wrong. 
Mm. And in those sorts of situations where a person can have an, a, a lifelong effect on someone's personality or their confidence, it's so easily done, that sort of thing. And um, you never forget the injustices of oh, school, do you? never. Yeah. I mean, they really are. They're, they're, they're taken to your grave. You, you, now, that, that, that early betrayal by Mrs. Pallister, yeah. it was like, it, I thought, oh, I see. And that, that's a life lesson. Yeah. You, can't, you just go... Oh, it not. Oh, <laughs> mm, I thought you were on my side. Yes, I thought I you were there to help me. Yeah, yeah. And now I see the situation. Yeah, yeah. it's a battle. Mm. Yes, I had a similar experience. I was supposed to swim the two twenty yards, and I volunteered to swim four forty. And the teacher said, "You'll never do it in the lesson." And I said, "I think I can. I'm a fast swimmer, Miss." She said, "Well, you just won't, Michael. But if you want to show off, I, I was oh. a show off." So in her, her eyes, I was a show-off because yeah. I used to joke around and get laughs and things. Did you do it? And I swam this distance in the time. I was so determined to do it. And when I got out, I said, I've done it. And she said, no, no, one length to go. And I said, no, that can't be the case. If it's, it's either two lengths or I've done it. And she said, there's one length to go, Michael, I've been counting. And they only awarded me the 220 yards. A lie. Oh, my God, it burns. So you can see now yeah. how that hurts, yeah, even now, after all these years. Oh, it's outrageous. Terrible. Well, thank you, Mark. Thank, thank you. you so much Pleasure. for taking part in this podcast. It's been lovely to talk to you. I'm going to seal the time capsule up, and I'll, I'll give it to you. There we are. Yeah, oh, it's big. Careful. Put a TARDIS noise <laughs> Thank you very much. Cheers, mate. That was, that's lovely. Really nice. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Mark Gatiss. This program was produced and edited by John Fenton-Stevens, and the music was by Pass the Peas Music. You can subscribe to this podcast on the Acast Player or wherever you prefer to get your podcasts from. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at MyTCPod, where you'll find extra content and behind-the-scenes photos. Or you can follow me on Twitter, at Fenton Stevens. My Time Capsule is a cast-off production. Thanks for listening. I hope you can join me again next time. Bye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.